You're listening to the All Things ADHD podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Melvin Bogart. My guest today is Dr. Roberto Olivardia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So please tell me more about you. Sure. I am a clinical psychologist and a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. I specialize in the treatment of ADHD, as well as uh, working with eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, a body dysmorphic disorder. Um, I see patients of all ages and specifically with ADHD, see a lot of people with ADHD and comorbid uh, disorders like ADHD and binge eating disorder or bipolar disorder, substance abuse, um, and uh, really happy to be here in this podcast. We are happy to have you. This is part two of Challenges in ADHD Care for Children of Color. In this episode, we are talking about how educators and healthcare providers can be more transcultural. African-American parents advocating for their child, how to get the black community to talk more about mental health issues, and so much more. Dr. Olivardia, how do we help educators to be more transcultural in their thinking and in the classroom? We definitely have to do a lot more training in terms of with educators, um, you know, and also understanding how do school systems deal and work with ADHD and or kids with learning disabilities. Studies find that African-American children, for example, who are diagnosed with ADHD are more likely to be put in a special ed classroom when they may not need those services of, of special education. Some do, um, but ADHD in and of itself doesn't have to warrant necessarily a different classroom. It might warrant accommodations within a classroom. Unlike, let's say, like um, having dyslexia, you may need a different classroom, different level of instruction. But to just group you know, the kids with ADHD with kids that might be on the autism spectrum or might have dyslexia or might have, you know, other issues is they're not getting sort of what they need in that way. So we want to look at it from the institutional perspective of, okay, so what is your, and this is talking to the school, your process of, of identifying ADHD. So when a teacher, um, you know, notices, because teachers are in an amazing role of really you know, they're often the first people that sometimes parents hear that say, you know, I'm noticing something in your child. Now, the teacher can't diagnose, but they can say it warrants some further exploration or examination. Again, keeping in mind that certain school systems that, let's say, might have very poor resources or where the threshold of kind of behavior, it might be difficult, let's say, for the child who has ADHD, but behaves very well, um, you know, who's under the radar might be much harder to detect because there are a lot of children that might be acting out in more externalizing ways. Again, for parents is to make sure that people aren't just, you know, it's easy when a child is acting out to say, oh, like to notice them. Um, it's harder for, we know this with girls with ADHD, which is why African-American girls with ADHD are the least identified um, often in, in these cohorts because girls with ADHD often are more internalized with their behavior. They're more kind of quiet. Their self-esteem is low, more depressed. They don't act it out in the same way. 
Um, but educating teachers about one, just what ADHD is in general, because I find a lot of times we still we are we still have a ways to go in terms of just educating about ADHD. But that intersection between a diagnosis and uh, communities of color and having an understanding of how that might land on families and understanding sort of their view and philosophy and speaking to that and speaking to you know what the benefits of treatment the benefits of diagnosis are this is not um, an indictment on your parenting um, that this is not a weakness you know at all you know in, in that way um, and I think that's where the messaging gets lost I've heard from people of color who have said, just in general about depression or other issues that say, we don't really talk about that, you know, in our, in our circles, like we think those are like white people problems um, in, in that way. And there is this stigma that's much bigger than I think even with ADHD, we assume is less so. But again, what we're finding is that that's less so in Caucasian cohorts, not so much in, in communities of color and understanding that. And also understanding that ADHD is heritable. And so a lot of these kids with ADHD have parents with ADHD that may or may not have been managed um, in some ways. You know, when you're working with any parent to understand that you could be unearthing their own past traumas of being in school and being labeled bad and thinking, oh, I don't want that, you know, for, for my child. And so a lot of the quote unquote defensiveness, suspiciousness, distrust, these, these terms that unfortunately have this pejorative sense that we sort of put on the parent as opposed to saying, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a reason that, that these, um, these parents feel this way. Maybe it's warranted not only individually, but just culturally and historically why that is. And that that's where we need to sort of train in educators and individuals because teachers really are amazing individuals. They have such a hard job and it's not pointing fingers or blaming them. It's more, again, understanding that all of us carry our own implicit biases, you know, in that way. Many Black people struggle to talk about mental health issues. How do we start the conversation? So I think it's really reaching people where they are at. Um, for example, you know, I um, worked with someone who found that talking in, you know, their church um, about, you know, mental health and bringing that into the church community, um, whether it's, you know, the boys and girls clubs, um, after school programs, it certainly helps when there's visibility of successful African-American individuals who have ADHD in that way. Podcasts like this, talks at ADHD conferences that are geared towards people of color and, and bringing them together. Um, I remember at a CHAD conference uh, some years back, they have um, these sort of networking groups typically in the evenings. And I had uh, facilitated one on uh, people of color, and there were, you know, a, lo a lot of moms and dads, um, African American, Hispanic, um, who were in the room. And it was the first time that many of them had even met an, uh, a fellow parent of color to talk about this. But just to even reach out and have somebody else speak of, of that experience and those special concerns is powerful. I mean, that's really, really powerful. Parents need to be more proactive as well. But what role do they play in the success of their child and advocating for fairness? Absolutely. So I think, you know, with, with parents, it's, um, 
you know, a lot of it is them understanding again, you know, getting the education, um, understanding that this, that it's okay to ask for help, that it doesn't mean that they have failed, that they are weak or that they are bad parents, you know, in any way. And also, you know, one of the other concerns I hear from parents is that they fear, you know, again, this idea of how will this follow them if my child wants to you know, go in the military, if in a future job that they have, um, you know, is this something that's going to sort of follow them that will cut off their opportunities? And again, emphasizing the importance of how proper treatment is going to be better for them. And with that is also, if they have issues, let's say if their child, if they get their child diagnosed, and um, let's say if medication or counseling upsides that happened over this past year is, is with all the tragedy that happened with COVID. But one thing is that therapy services have gone remote and virtual and studies show that they can be just as effective. So now that has really opened up something very exciting for a lot of communities of color and particularly for people of lower socioeconomic groups, which has been difficult to find transportation, to find the time to get to a counselor. That can open up, you know, services. You want to do everything you can and to know that the, the problem is not you. The problem is that there are these barriers that really shouldn't be there. And unfortunately, you know, it often takes the minority to inform the majority that those barriers exist and how do we all then work together um, in that way. And engage with your child and let your child know that they're not defective. Their brain is not wrong. I think a lot of times parents are hesitant because they don't want their child to feel different. And I tell them, well, they are different and they feel different, but different doesn't have to be bad. Different doesn't have to be defective. Okay, you know, my I don't want my child to have that label. It often helps them to understand, oh, okay, there's something that explains this. It's not that I'm dumb. It's not that I'm weak. It's not that, because those are the terms that they're going to think of for themselves unless they get a frame that helps them understand what the issue is. What would a more culturally sensitive diagnostic tool look like? It's a great question. And this is where, you know, even when we take it from the assessment level of really re-examining all of our diagnostic tools in terms of is this culturally competent um, in terms of the questions that we're asking and how we're understanding. And this can lead again to both under and over diagnosis, because if you say, you know, are there times of the day that you're distracted and inattentive? Well, we also know that that could be due to anxiety. That could be due to if you're growing up in an abusive family. That could be because you're hungry. That could be because you didn't sleep well because there's no heat in your house. That could be, I mean, there are lots of things. And I, I would say at the very basic level, we never want to just look at um, a piece of paper, a survey, a test and say, okay, this person has or does not have it. It's taking that and really connecting to the story of that individual. And one of the things that in communities of color often value is the sort of art, the, the narrative, you know, the art of storytelling and really understanding, you know, somebody in a specific context as clinicians, as people who assess is to just have somebody talk and say, tell me what your concerns are and share with me, if it's a parent, 
talking about their child, like who your child is, what are your concerns? And to let them know that boxes that get checked are supplemental. We don't want that to determine because at the end of the day, if a child is not succeeding in school, then there's something, you know, happening. So even if the if the test scores show, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, we're not getting to the heart of the matter. We want to look at all of the issues that, you know, are, are involved. I think that at the very basic level, and then from a research perspective is that we need, you know, more research that specifically focuses on people of color in validating these instruments. I mean, we might find that some of these instruments that we use are are, cult are culturally competent, um, but we don't 100% know until we've, you know, normed it and have reference groups that are primarily a people of color. And, you know, there's individuals of color, and then there's also different socioeconomic groups, whether they're people of color or not. I mean, that that's a whole other variable of intersectionality that's really important. But having said that, studies still show that even um, sort of higher socioeconomic African-American groups still um, struggle with proper assessment, proper diagnosis, proper treatment, a lot of the stigma. Of course, they're still subject to racism, discrimination. Um, so it, it's still, you know, there, you know, regardless of what socioeconomic group. But if you are of a lower socioeconomic group and a person of color, that's, you know, there's a lot there that we have to understand that in those cases, you know, it's like one plus one doesn't equal two, like one plus one equals five, meaning that there's an exponential effect when you have these variables. And that's why we see, you know, girl, African-American girls who are growing up in lower socioeconomic are, you know, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of barrier in terms of proper identification um, for, for that. How do we get more healthcare professionals invested in treating all people fairly? I think it's really with education. And I think it starts very early, you know, whether it's, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I feel very, very fortunate. I got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And this program was way ahead of its time, um, where it's very focused on cross-cultural psychology, cultural competence. So when I was in graduate school, every course we had from assessment to psychopathology, it, it wasn't, I mean, we also had our own culture and mental health course, but embedded in every course, we looked at, okay, so this is how we learn about it. However, let's look at the research and we find that this was normed with white men. And what does this mean for women? What does this mean for LGBTQ? You know, what does this mean for African-American? Um, we need more of that model um, in just graduate school programs for psychologists, social work programs, um, medical school. Um, and there, I have to say, there's, I am seeing more of that in terms of diversity training and understanding, again, when you have a patient that comes through the door, you know, understanding their story and understanding the context of those symptoms. So, for example, um, and this was just a casual conversation I had, you know, with a, a physician at a conference a couple of years ago um, who said, yeah, you know, sometimes I, you know, see patients and by the time they come to see me, their diabetes is like so out of control. Like they, like, come on, like you need to come, you know, from when this problem is starting as if, again, this sort of implicit blame or explicit blame on the patient, like, oh, you came way too late. 
well, let's understand what might have gotten in the way. Maybe that person has co-pays that they can't afford. Maybe they're working two, three jobs that they don't have time. Maybe they're raising their children. And they're like, you know what? If I have to pay for medical services, it'll be for my children, not for me. Um, maybe they can't afford healthy food. And so unfortunately, the food that they can afford is going to be food that's high in fat and that isn't going to be good for their health. So all of that, as, a, so, as opposed to understanding, okay, so tell me that and now I can understand that. Because even though this doctor was a, a good person who wanted to treat you know, their patient, but if we understand what can, if there's any sense of judgment, even implicitly that comes through like, whoa, like you waited way too long you know, for this without understanding the context, that patient feels shamed. They feel like distrustful. They feel, well, how do I expect to put my myself in this person's care. Um, so those kind of conversations, because again, you know, with there's blatant full out racism, but more so is we see these kinds of sort of implicit biases and and a lack of really understanding the full context. And that's that's where we in the the medical mental health professional world need to continue to step up and train from the as we're training individuals, you know, to do that. And then having continuing education around, you know, that. I mean, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts and in Massachusetts, every two years we have to renew our license as psychologists. And it was mandatory that we had this cultural um, course in, in terms of, you know, looking for continuing ed and, as well as, you know, other uh, course. And I think that has to be a requirement of just kind of making it, important for people to look at because even people who are very politically aware, very socially aware, who are like, oh yeah, no, no, I understand that. It's like, no, you understand about certainly racism and, and you may not be racist and they absolutely. However, do you understand fully? Um, and so that's what we have to do in terms of educating people. Any final words? I would implore ever, anyone you know who listens to the podcast you know google you know african american and adhd um people of color um just find resources online you know read articles hear voices of people who have experienced it and have experienced some of the barriers great suggestions thank you my pleasure thank you for doing this topic and and you know having uh, as many people in, in the adhd community talking about it thank you for listening to another episode of all things adhd to learn more about adhd visit chad at chadd.org